Thanks to JWST, we're getting an amazing view of the early universe. We're being able to see through the gas and dust to see newly forming planets. And that's because it is an infrared observatory. It's able to see in the mid and near versions of infrared. And then, of course, we've got other ground-based telescopes like ALMA, which are in the microwave, and they're revealing these incredible protoplanetary disks, newly forming star systems, as well as lots of other observations around the universe. But there's this gap in between those two called the far infrared. And you might be familiar with telescopes like Herschel or Spitzer. Both of these were observing in the far infrared, but they're a technically challenging kind of telescope. They have to go to space. We can't see it from Earth. And you need some kind of cooling system that can bring that telescope temperature down almost to the background temperature of the universe so that it can observe these regions. Right now, there are no telescopes in that wavelength, and yet there's a lot of science that can be done. So my guest today is Dr. David Lisowitz, who is an astrophysicist. He's the chief at the Science Proposal Support Office at NASA and has been thinking about far-infrared observatories for almost three decades and has been influential in the development of many instruments that have come and gone, as well as other telescopes that you might be familiar with today. And he is now making the proposal that not only do we build a far infrared telescope, that it is an interferometer where you have multiple telescopes that are connected at a separation so that you can then combine the light from the two telescopes and you have sort of a virtual telescope that is the gap between those telescopes. And of course, that allows incredible angular resolution so that we can see individual objects like, oh, I don't know, planets, um, pick out individual galaxies that are seen early on in the universe. So it's a pretty exciting concept for a telescope. And so here is my interview with Dr. David Liesowitz. So for those who aren't completely familiar with their electromagnetic spectrum, where does the far infrared portion lie? In between visible light and radio wavelength light, or you might say microwaves. But I mean, we're familiar with infrared. JWST is in the mid and near infrared. Hubble could do near infrared. Where mm -hmm. is the far infrared? Yeah, that's an important distinction. Um, unlike certain other parts of the electromagnetic spectrum, when you say infrared, that covers a very broad range. And people make distinctions between near, mid, and far infrared people in the field. Um, the far infrared, I think most people would agree approximately to the boundaries being between about 25 micro microns or micrometers all the way up to let's say 450 or so micrometers. And and the other side of it is like microwave, ALMA, yeah, things like that. And even, even in between there, there are distinctions made. Some people would refer to slightly longer than 450 microns as submillimeter. And then you get out into millimeter and, and microwave and then radio wavelength. And why are there no far infrared telescopes. I mean, they're just, there aren't any well, right there now. There have been, so yes. it's important to, to note that to begin with. Um, the last uh, flagship class observatory for the far infrared was the Herschel Space Observatory. And prior to that, we had the Spitzer uh, Space Telescope. Um, 
there's a long history of infrared, far infrared telescopes in space going back to IRAS, the infrared astronomical satellite in the early 1980s. Um, so the, it's a very interesting question as to why we don't have one now. It has to do with cost constraints and community priorities. And it's only a matter of time before we have one again that's much more capable than we've ever had before. Uh, but that time hasn't yet happened. But you can't build one on Earth. You, it wouldn't work on Earth. The reason being that the far infrared light doesn't penetrate our atmosphere to reach us on the ground. Um, there are a few narrow windows where light at about 350 microns, for example, can sneak through. But if you want the big picture of the far infrared over that wavelength range I mentioned from 25 to 450 or so microns, um, you, you really need to be in space. And so, I mean, I guess that's part of it is that you need to have a space telescope. But also, when I think about Herschel and I think about Spitzer Space Telescope, they were both on a ticking clock because of the coolant required. Does yeah. that sort of set a limitation on the on the length your mission can run? Uh, it can, uh, but it doesn't have to anymore. Um, so maybe the first important point to make is and you've raised the point. Um, it, this is another important reason that we have to do this in space. The reason these telescopes have to be cold is that if they were warm, the telescopes themselves would be producing a lot of far-infrared emission, which would represent essentially a fog that you would have to observe through in order to see the celestial objects that you really want to observe and measure with great sensitivity. So if you can dial down the telescope's emission by making it cold and having very sensitive detectors, then you, you have much, much greater sensitivity. And it's an extremely sensitive knob. As you dial the temperature down, the sensitivity goes way, way up. Um, the Herschel Space Observatory operated at about 80 Kelvin, 80 degrees above absolute zero, at which temperature, well, for its time, that was actually a good match to the detector sensitivity available but it's not nearly as good as one could do in, in principle, uh, given light from the sky as its own noise source. Uh, if you could get a telescope cooled to about four, four and a half Kelvin, then the telescope becomes completely invisible. And uh, you're, you're smiling. This yeah, is yeah, yeah, yeah. That's like a, just a couple of Kelvin above absolute, of, of absolute zero, above the mm -hmm. background temperature of the universe. That's cold. It's very cold. It's the temperature of liquid helium, approximately. And um, this actually can be done. So you also raised a good question about the lifetime limit of these past missions. Uh, in the past, the missions were cooled with a uh, an expendable uh, onboard source of cryogen, which could have been liquid helium, liquid nitrogen, um, in the case of, uh, of the WISE mission, uh, that would have been solid hydrogen. Uh, so we've used these exotic um, uh, sort of supplies of, of cold stuff that evaporate over time and uh, keep the telescope cold while they exist, but eventually that vanishes. 
um, and past missions have been limited in their lifetime by the expendable source of cryogen. Uh, in the future, uh, the technology is there now to use uh, mechanical cryocoolers to get the temperature down to about four and a half Kelvin, or maybe even four Kelvin. One of these um, cryocoolers is on the James Webb Space Telescope now, operating successfully. Uh, in fact, another one is on the uh, CRISM telescope that was just launched from Japan fairly recently. That's a, um, a, uh, an X-ray mission in which NASA and JAXA, the Japanese space agency, are collaborating. Um, so mechanical cryocoolers are the way of the future, and they are expected to have much, much longer lifetimes. It can be 10 plus years. Uh, generally, when uh, missions that have flown cryocoolers uh, have ended their lifetimes, it's not because of the cryocooler. Right. And, and so do you need to cool down the instruments, or do you actually have to cool down the entire telescope to this temperature? Good question. Both. Um, the, the telescope has to be cooled to about four, four and a half Kelvin to make the optics invisible. The instrument also has to be cooled even further than that for the detectors to operate properly and give you the maximum performance. And there, uh, now your eyebrows will go up again, I'm sure, there yep. we're talking about detector temperatures that are um, of order 100 millikelvin. So, like millionths of a Kelvin above absolute zero. Well, a millikelvin would be a thousandth of a Kelvin. So we're right. Okay, we're sorry. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. So it's it's not quite that bad, but very very cold. And it's interesting. Like I think of an analogy that, like, imagine if a telescope, the 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 primary mirror of the telescope was also a giant light bulb, right? Mm -hmm. And that you were attempting to use that telescope to observe light with. And you really can't use it until you turn off that light. Yes. Otherwise, and, you would only be seeing the light bulb and not a distant galaxy. Yeah, yeah. And so, but but in infrared, everything is is colder, and so these all become engineering challenges. So, all right. So that, so that sort of sets the stage for the challenges. Let's talk about the benefits. What what does far infrared space based far infrared capability give us in terms of astronomy? A very broad range of possible new science. Um, and we've really just, you know, pretty much gotten to the tip of the iceberg with these past missions that I've mentioned. Um, generally, what you're talking about are topics like how did galaxies form and evolve? How did they change over time throughout cosmic history? Um, how do stars and planetary systems form? Um, what are the architectures of planetary systems, finding planets in orbits that otherwise are undetectable uh, through other detection methods? Um, understanding, um, well, really just the whole process of star and planet formation. Those are really prominent things. So stars form inside dense interstellar molecular clouds in dense little knots within those clouds. They collapse down due to their own gravity. And the clouds are laden with dust. And the dust blocks visible light. So a lot of these things are not even visible with a telescope like Hubble or other telescopes that operate at shorter wavelengths. 
But when you get to a long enough wavelength in the far infrared, the light can penetrate through the dust and reach us. But just as importantly, the objects themselves emit most of their light at these far infrared wavelengths. There might be a central star heating up its immediately surrounding dust cloud, dust and gas cloud that's going to turn into planets. And that infrared emission from the object itself can escape and we can measure it and learn about these processes. Now we're seeing a lot of like amazing pictures coming from Webb, including some of these newly forming planetary systems. And I'm sort of thinking about some of the images that we've seen. There was a recent Herbigharo object where you could see the the polar jets coming off of the object, but the actual protostar itself was still shrouded by a very kind of dark cloud of of nebula. So, I mean, I guess there's sort of two parts to this, right? One is the ability for the wavelengths to pierce through certain kinds of obscuring material. And then the other part of this is the kinds of objects that will shine in these wavelengths. Mm -hmm. So sort of thinking back to that idea of an exoplanetary system, what could we see with a far infrared observatory compared to say what we might be already quite familiar with already with, with James Webb? Yeah, so in a way there are two bookends. James Webb is one. The other one is ALMA, which is the Atacama Large Millimeter Array. That is a ground-based millimeter wavelength observatory. Um, and both of them make really spectacularly good measurements of, of many objects. And what we're talking about in the far infrared is, some would call it a gap in our coverage, but more importantly, it's a place where you would look to fill in a lot of information that you can't capture with either either of those two bookends, JWST or ALMA. So as you said, um, and as I mentioned before, these objects emit most of their light in the far infrared. So to give you one example, um, a uh, very interesting thing to go after, to observe and understand, uh, to study planetary system architectures and the rich variety of them that might exist out there. You might want to know how ordinary or rare is our own solar system in the context of all solar systems. Um, so to do that, you would like to know planetary system architectures. Are, are the little planets always close to the star, little rocky planets? and the gas and ice giants farther out? Or is that just our own peculiar arrangement? So for that particular topic, one thing you can do in the far infrared is to observe the dust emission from these so-called debris disks. An evolved mature solar system has its own dusty debris. And that, that dust is heated up by the star and it glows in the far infrared, predominantly in the far infrared. If you go out to long enough wavelengths, um, ALMA can see these objects, and ALMA has spectacularly high angular resolution. So it can resolve the disks and measure their structure. And from the structure, you can infer that there is a planet orbiting somewhere, and you can infer its mass. It's the kind of thing that you would, very similar, an analogy is to the rings of Saturn, where the ring structure is established by the rotating moons around the planet. So um, if you wanted to observe debris disks, 
you would be much better off observing them in the far infrared than in the, in the longer wavelengths that Alma sees because that's where they're brightest. You can only capture the very brightest ones of these disks with Alma, but if you want a large sample to really understand the population of planetary system architectures, you've got to do that in the far infrared. That's just one example, but it illustrates, you know, how the complementarity of what you get out of the far infrared relative to the bookends. Um, at the James Webb wavelengths, um, these objects, debris disks, and the other kinds of objects I was mentioning, um, they also, the, the same thing goes, that the, the brightness of the object is falling off at James Webb wavelengths. You can still detect them, debris disks, for example, um, but at the longest, that would be at the longest wavelengths that you see with James Webb. And at its longest wavelengths, its angular resolution is poorest. And if you want to see the structure in these disks, you need better angular resolution. And I, I think about like the methodologies for finding exoplanets today. I mean, we have the transit method, we have the radio velocity method, the astrometry method is, is coming online, a couple of examples of direct imaging. And yet the planetary systems that have been found so far are all this low-hanging fruit. Like we detect hot Jupiters because they're close, they orbit very quickly, they're easy to find compared to comparatively. And yet on the other end of the spectrum, as you said, you've got ALMA, you're looking at these newly forming planetary systems. So is the goal then to kind of get a better snapshot? Like, could we see the solar system forming in some other star system and make out the positions of all of the newly forming planets in their various orbits to some degree of certainty to, to then compare against the methods that we use to find the planets today. Yeah, you absolutely could do that. So you've shifted a little bit to, to younger objects when you talk about a protoplanetary disk. A moment ago, I was talking about what we call debris disks, so they're more evolved like our own solar well, either system. Either way, I mean, I don't mind, like whatever gets you to see the, the, the entire picture of the new, of the planetary system. That's what's missing um, in exoplanets right now. So yes, you absolutely could make measurements like that in the far infrared. In order to do it, you, you would have to have both high sensitivity and high resolution, image resolution. Um, because the, the planets um, in these forming uh, planetary systems will have gravitational effects on the material, the, the gas and dust that's orbiting. They'll trap some of that material, leading to kind of a bright spot where the planet is forming. Um, but the contrast of that spot to the rest of the disk emission is not very great. And so it's an observational challenge, but one that you, know, you could design an observatory to make that measurement. And then the other sort of regime, and you know, you brought this up earlier on, but when we think about Webb and its ability to look back in time, it's you know the fact that it's an infrared observatory is showing us what were once visible wavelengths shifted into the infrared thanks to the redshift of the universe. Are the limits of Webb the point where it can no longer see far enough into the infrared? And so, does a far infrared observatory take you? further back in time, closer to the beginning of the universe? Ah, no, not quite. Um, however, um, let me put it a different way. If you pick any old galaxy, could be our own Milky Way or some distant galaxy, and you look at 
its spectrum, which is where is the, the light coming out, at what wavelengths are the, are the light coming out, um, you get two emission peaks, one of which is the starlight from the galaxy, and the other is from the dust that's warmed up by the stars and glows in the infrared. The other effect is redshift. As you look farther and farther out into the universe, galaxies are shifted more toward the red. So let's start with a galaxy in its own rest wavelength, in, in its own rest frame, without any motion away from us, uh, the Doppler shift. Um, the, the starlight peaks at visible wavelengths. We can all kind of imagine stars are bright things to our eyes and we see visible light. Um, the dust emission from, let's say, our own galaxy peaks at somewhere like 60 microns or 100 microns or so. It's relatively cool material. Um, and if you then apply the redshift, because you're looking farther and farther out into the universe, James Webb is the perfect complement to Hubble because it follows the starlight from uh, from rest frame visible out into the mid-infrared where the starlight hump is, is shifted. But that rest frame far infrared peak from the dust is also shifted and it's shifted farther out into the far infrared. So local galaxies have a spectral peak at about 100 microns. If you go out to a redshift of three, that peak is shifted to 400 microns. And you can continue that observation with ALMA observing at even longer wavelengths to follow the dust emission peak out at even higher redshifts. With a far infrared observatory, you could certainly go out to redshifts of four, five, six with sufficient sensitivity and angular resolution. Seeing the dust. Seeing the dust. Right. And right. it's not just the dust, actually, um, in, in all of these cases. I talked about sort of the broadband emission humps, uh, but what, what astronomers really want is a spectrum with high spectral resolution. And then you see the spectral lines from the gas. And those lines, those spectral lines, are fantastic diagnostics of physical conditions, the chemical makeup of the objects you're observing. Um, just to give you a, for instance, um, water spectral lines. Um, so this is water molecules in the, in the galaxies or any objects of interest. Those have their own spectral fingerprint. And many of these water lines um, are very strong in the far infrared. And you'd like to be able to observe these spectral lines, not only at um, James Webb wavelengths, but also at far infrared and HALMA wavelengths. And so you're getting the chemical fingerprint of very specific kinds of features of these galaxies that has been redshifted beyond what, say, Webb or some other telescope would be able to detect just because what would have been possible if it was in our rest frame or its local refer reference frame has now redshifted to a point that it's no longer visible. And so this can kind of bring these kinds, this kind of science back into focus, especially at earlier times in the universe. Yeah. And may I give you a science example there? 
Sure. Yeah. Yeah. One of the the big questions these days is trying to understand the coevolution of black holes, the central supermassive black holes in galaxies and the galaxies that surround them. We, it's there's a bit of a chicken and egg picture. Which came first? How does the black hole and its um, violent surrounding environment affect the galaxy? And how does the galaxy fuel the black hole? Um, and how did all of that affect galaxy evolution over time? Well, one of the things you can do in the far infrared with spectral lines is to distinguish any individual galaxy's emission as being predominantly from the central supermassive black hole, which we usually refer to as an active galactic nucleus, AGN, um, versus the overall star-forming disk of the galaxy. So to be able to make that diagnostic of, you know, this galaxy is dominated by AGN activity, that other one by star formation activity, and how did that change over cosmic history? Were early galaxies predominantly of one type and then it changed or what? So you need to now, sort that out. Now, your most recent paper, the one that sort of caught my attention on, on archive was, you know, sort of had... You know, you talked about far infrared that I'm quite interested in, but then you also use sort of one of my favorite terms, which is interferometer, a space-based mm -hmm. interferometer. And this feels like one of the sort of great goals in astronomy is to get a space-based interferometer flying. There was the canceled terrestrial planet finder back earlier this century. There's the upcoming LISA mission, which will provide an interferometer, but mm -hmm. but I, I can't think of any examples of interferometers that have flown to space. Why? And you know, and you sort of like half of your argument is that we should build a far infrared telescope and we should make an interferometer. So yeah. why does far infrared sort of make a very compelling case for flying an interferometer? Mm -hmm. Maybe I should start by saying a couple of words about what an interferometer is. Sure. I've got, I mean, I've got a fairly advanced audience, so they... They know, okay. They know exactly okay. What so then I won't is. dwell on that, but yeah, I yeah. will just point out that interferometry has been around since the days of Michelson a century ago, a long history on the ground and um, productive um, and gaining tremendous productivity with ALMA, which is an interferometer. Um, so it is absolutely true that so far we have talked a lot about doing interferometry in space and haven't done it very much. Um, so we talk about it because it is such an exciting prospect. Um, I think the reason it hasn't happened sooner is that it was the way we approached it. We started out picking off the really hard things rather than the low-hanging fruit. Um, you didn't mention a, a, uh, an interferometer called SIM, the Space Interferometry Mission, that actually was prioritized by the community for some time and then deprioritized. And uh, NASA actually invested quite a lot of money in, um, in developing technology for the mission. And then the community, through a decadal survey, pulled the plug on that mission. So it hasn't happened. And around that same time, there was great discussion about the terrestrial planet finder interferometer, um, which is near infrared, a little bit longer in wavelength. The longer in wavelength, the easier it gets, um, almost in direct proportion to wavelength. 
Um, so TPF would have been um, easier than SIM uh, in some ways, but it still did require um, a, a relatively difficult technique called nulling, which is to null out the starlight so you could see and characterize faint planets around the star. It absolutely can be done, um, and there's actually a revival of interest in that concept, especially centered in Europe, called the LIFE mission, L-I-F-E. I don't recall offhand what that acronym stands for, uh, but it's very much like TPF interferometer and the European um, counterpart to it called Darwin. So, sorry, so anyway, how does, how does the... Apologize, but how does the, the the nulling method work compared to you know um, you know people are fairly familiar with the chronograph, both the chronograph that's say on board JWST or some of the ground based observatories, like the sphere instrument on the very large telescope, but then there's also like the idea for starshade where you fly, you know, far away from your spacecraft and and block the light. So how does yeah. nulling work yeah. compared to that um, those techniques? The best way I can think to describe that is that you're, you're measuring interference patterns of light, um, which you you know I in in friendly popular conversation, person sitting next to me on a plane, I'd like to talk about you know you toss two pebbles into a pond and they each have an expanding set of waves and the waves overlap and where they overlap they either constructively or destructively interfere, and if you position your star in a place in the field where you get destructive interference from the star's light, it, the, the star's light essentially vanishes from the measurement. That's nulling. And does that require multiple telescopes to see that interference? Um, it does. Uh, and in fact, any interferometer is essentially comprised of multiple telescopes. It can be as few as two or it can be multiple. And in a way, the more the merrier, but uh, there, there are pros and cons to different architectures of the interferometer. Right, but um, but that just like the, the ability to, like one of the advantages of flying an interferometer, I mean, you get that giant baseline for the distance of the telescopes, but that the other additional is a, a new way of blocking the light of stars becomes available to you in addition. Yes. Right. right. It's really interesting. So that, okay. that would have been the TPFI concept and now the LIFE concept. Um, the kind of interferometer that I'm very keen on someday getting into space would be a far infrared interferometer. And we could, well, first thing to say is because we've now shifted to a much longer wavelength than either SIM or TPFI, the Tolerances are greatly relaxed on the optical system alignment and control. And that part of the challenge is actually not such a great challenge. In fact, I would argue it's much easier than the way JWST operates to al align all of its mirror segments to make, th make them all function as a single large telescope. Um, so that methodology is all well understood and much easier in the far infrared than it would be at shorter wavelengths. Um, the next thing to say is that we would not require nulling of starlight or anything. Um, we would simply want in the far infrared to collect high resolution images with great sensitivity and at the same time spectra. 
So if you can imagine a um, what I would call a data cube, so you have two dimensions of the cube that represent a high resolution image, and the third dimension of the cube is a whole bunch of wavelength slices all very close together, and you can pick any little object in that field um, and go into the third dimension and pull out that object's spectrum. It's a spatial spectral data cube, and that's what you would get from a far infrared interferometer. And what, like when I think about, say, the interferometers that have been built so far, like the Event Horizon Telescope, we had all of these separate telescopes that were recording their data simultaneously, but then they used enormous computing resources to match up the the actual signals to the point that they could do the interferometry. Interferometry, and as you said, Alma, for example, is is more done in real time, but is a you know it's on Earth very close together, and they can sort of track the positions of all of the the telescopes. But and then on the sort of we think about the very large telescope, which is an interferometer or the, you know the Keck Observatory, things like that. I mean they they have to use very careful techniques to align those telescopes physically in position and they can't be off yep. by more than, you know, a few hundred nanometers and there and then the signal is lost. Mm -hmm. So like what kind of form do you see a space-based far infrared interferometer taking? Is it separate spacecraft flying in formation? Is it some object like something that, that where the the lenses are actually connected physically? So let me come back to the question about the architecture, the formation flying and that sort of thing, and first build on the point that you're making about the detection methodology. So it, it is true that at long wavelengths, such as those where ALMA is observing, um, the, the interferometry technique um, can operate with separate measurements at the different telescopes where the correlation in the signal is done through computation. And the reason for that <clears throat> is that at those wavelengths, you use heterodyne detection and you have a local oscillator uh, with it's calibrated in frequency and your sky signal is always compared with that local oscillator and then you measure the beat frequencies, et cetera. Um, that's, that's how heterodyne works. But that method gives you the phase of the, of the light, not only its amplitude. And when you can measure the phase and do it at one telescope and another telescope, later you can use that phase information to do the correlation. When you get down to wavelengths in the far infrared or even submillimeter, the heterodyne detection technique has a fundamental quantum noise limit to its detection capability, the sensitivity. Um, and you, you are much more sensitive if you directly combine the light from the multiple telescopes and detect the interference pattern that results. So in the far infrared and at shorter wavelengths, all the interferometers are not heterodyne type, but direct beam combination type. Uh, that goes all the way back to Michelson's interferometers. Um, okay, so now let me say a word about formation flying and the architectures. Um, in principle, you can use formation flying, separate spacecraft, 
Um, and as long as you have sufficient control on the separation between them, both control and knowledge, then you can do the direct beam combination. So um, in terms of, of how closely, you know, how precisely you would have to control the formation, um, for the kind of interferometer I am pursuing in the far infrared, it would have a scanning optical delay line, which you could think of as a, an optical trombone, where you're adding or subtracting light path to the light that comes from one side versus the other side. And because you, you, you do that for a couple of reasons, one of which is to um, measure the spectrum, because having the scanning delay line gives, it's a Fourier transform spec, spectrometer, and that if you take the Fourier transform of the, um, the interference pattern, you get a spectrum. So you want to have an FTS, a Fourier transform spectrometer, in your beam combiner anyway. And that has a certain scan range to it. You also want that scan range to be long enough so that you don't only have to observe an object that's directly the thing you're pointing at, but something that's a little bit off to one side or the other to widen the field of view. Um, so that scan, uh, you know, if you had, let's say, a 10 or 20 centimeter or a meter long scan length, you could absorb within that, dedicate some fraction of that range to imprecision in your, um, in your space flight formation control. So that's if you imagine that you had free-flying spacecraft or something like that. But there is a, another challenge to doing this kind of imaging and spectroscopic measurement with free-flying spacecraft. To get a high-quality image, you have to be able to move the spacecraft all over the place or have many, many of them, which makes your beam combination very messy. Um, <clears throat> to move them around if they're literally separated spacecraft and essentially fill in the, the area that you would otherwise want to fill with a single aperture telescope of some enormous size, <clears throat> that takes a lot of propellant. And then you've got to be able to point to a different target, etc. All of that takes a lot of propellant. So a good imaging interferometer um, does require that kind of motion. And you can um, achieve that with shorter baselines, let's say up to 100 meters or so, with a structure. So if you had two telescopes on a structure and a central beam combiner, which is the approach that I've been pursuing for quite some time now because it's very practical, um, you can move the telescopes back and forth along the structure to change the interferometric baseline length, which you need for imaging, and you can rotate while you're observing the object of interest. And that combination of rotation and the baseline length change fills in that area as densely as you wish and gives you a high quality image. You can extend that general concept to formation flight and someday, decades from now, I think we're going to want to do that. But to get around the propellant challenge, 
what you could do, and we've explored this possibility with a little bit of technology development on the ground, is tether together the multiple spacecraft. So instead of having a, a more, more or less rigid structure, you would have a tether and you'd still rotate. The tether would stay approximately taut as just due to the centripetal forces. So I'm sort of imagining like, you know, if you had two free-flying telescopes and you ask them both to look to the right and then both telescopes sort of turn to the right, then the light waves, whatever you're, you're looking at is going to hit one telescope first and then it's going to hit the other telescope second. And, you know, for human beings, we're not going to notice the difference, but we could be talking about, you know, if, if they are separated far enough to get a really powerful interferometer, you could be looking at milliseconds of delay from when the first telescope sees the light from when the second one does. And then you want both telescopes to then turn to the left and now observe on the opposite side of the sky. Now you have the, the inverse problem. Mm -hmm. And so you trying to then line up that interferometer inside them, you're going to mess the calculations. And so putting them on some kind of rigid, I'm sort of imagining some kind of central, you know, spacecraft that is filled with reaction wheels and then mm -hmm. has sort of trusses that come out on both sides. And then you've got your big telescopes on the end of it. And then the whole thing can kind of turn, always keeping those two telescopes so that whatever they're looking at, the objects appear precisely in the right time frame that you need for them to to interfere. Is that, am I sort of, am I getting the-, the You're absolutely on the right track. Yeah. Um, so the rotation axis around which the structure spins should point to the object of interest. It doesn't have to be extremely precisely on axis because of that optical delay mechanism that I was referring to, uh, which you need for both spectroscopy and field of view widening. Um, but you, you can't look very, you know, like many degrees away, um, or you would need an extremely long baseline, or sorry, optical delay line, and it would not operate very efficiently. But for fields of view like arc minutes, um, the kinds of things that we're accustomed to with Hubble and James Webb, <coughs> um, you absolutely could make that measurement of the entire field of view all at once. And then if you wanted to observe another object a few degrees away, you would repoint the whole thing. The whole spin axis would shift over, which you can do with built-in reaction wheels. And do you think in retrospect, I mean, like the fact that the that SIM, the Space Interferometry Mission, was canceled and that the Terrestrial Planet Finder was canceled, and we're looking at the long lead time that's going to take for LISA to fly, which is another version of a, of a interferometer. You know, they're using lasers to, to keep them in aligned. Do you think if they had started technically sort of risk-based starting at the sort of the most forgiving wavelengths of the electromagnetic spectrum and then kind of learned as you go up through the spectrum, that would have been sort of a safer path to go? Um, in a way, the, you, the question conflates two challenges. Um, LISA has different technical challenges than the kind of interferometer I'm talking about. Um, it's, you know, well, I don't even want to go into it. Yeah. I wouldn't do a good job explaining. Yeah. It's but, complicated. But 2035. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also um, a different class of mission. It's a flagship class observatory costing, you know, comparable to James Webb, perhaps, and 
someone on the Lisa community, forgive me if I am misplacing it, but it is a flagship class mission. Yeah. You could build a structurally um, connected far infrared interferometer for about a billion dollars. Hmm. So it's, it's almost an order of magnitude different uh, cost class. So it doesn't, in a way, um, compete directly. Um, and it has to solve different technical problems, different challenges than Lisa. But it, so I, I, I wouldn't necessarily say that one should have preceded the other. Well, I guess I'm, you know, I'm, I'm lumping in, you know, whatever possible interferometry missions have been considered so far, and they tend to be complicated and and sort of filled with with risk that has to be figured out. And mm -hmm. and yet, because you know, the interferometry is so exciting um coming at it from the the more forgiving sides of the wavelengths just feels like a you know a sort of low risk approach that you sort of work your way up risk mountain complexity mountain one mm -hmm. discovery at a time because you will have you know building this will deliver thousands of of discoveries to people who yeah. will follow in your footsteps to build a more complicated Absolutely. version of High that. payoff, relatively low risk. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the magic of, of an interferometer of the large baseline is that gives you the resolution. It allows you to, to, you know, perceive objects separated from each other. So, you know, for the kind of interferometer that you're imagining, what sort of objects do you think you could resolve at that point? All the kinds of things we've been discussing. So um, the galaxies in the deep universe, the, um, the protoplanetary disks, the debris disks, um, and you name it, could be evolved stars with circumstellar envelopes. The list goes on and on. Um, we have been so far uh, away from this angular resolution regime, we're talking about sub arc seconds with the interferometer, that, you know, if we could get into that regime, it would just open up vast new territory for discovery. Uh, but let's just pick the extragalactic sky for a start and have a website where you can slide a little bar back and forth and compare a Herschel image of the of the extragalactic sky with what an inter, a structurally connected interferometer would give you, and actually there's one of these little slider things for the protoplanetary and debris disks as well. But if we just stick with the extragalactic sky, there's a huge qualitative difference in what you get with Herschel, which was a three and a half meter telescope, the biggest telescope we ever had in space before James Webb. Um, and what you would get with a 36 meter long interferometer on a structure. The, with the Herschel view of the sky has angular resolution in the far infrared that, that has, let's say, a, about a dozen galaxies for every resolution element, maybe even more. Um, and so picking apart those galaxies and understanding them, them as individual objects, which you need to do to understand how galaxies evolved over time, you could just begin to poke at that problem with Herschel, but it was hard and it, it was very model dependent. 
If you had the interferometer, if you slide that bar over, what you'll see is the individual galaxies, and you have to remember that the interferometer allows you to measure the spectrum of every one of those, of those individual galaxies. The spectrum not only gives you the redshift of the galaxy, but also um, gives you all that wonderful diagnostic information, AGN versus star formation. I mean, this is one of the, the issues that's starting to come up now. Like even with, with Webb, you're getting all of these galaxies at high redshift. And there was sort of a race to find the farthest galaxy, the one that's seen at the earliest in time. But as more careful spectroscopy is getting done, and you're, you're like, oh, no, that's not as far as we thought. That's not the redshift that we believed. Getting that kind of separation of objects at great distances sounds like it would be a real boon to to astronomy. This kind of work to understand kind of the middle ages of the universe and early universe. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, the the images and spectra that James Webb is returning are just spectacular, um, and we're it's beginning to revolutionize our understanding of galaxies and and how they evolved. Um, so just what it was designed to do. It's just fantastic. And if you take a peek at any one of the James Webb or prior to that, the Hubble deep fields, um, you do see all those individual galaxies. You can see that there's a vast variety in galaxy morphology and color and what's going on inside the galaxies. And um, we have never been able to do that in the far infrared with the the complementary information that the far infrared spectrum provides, but the interferometer would give you an image with the same kind of resolution as James Webb, but at ten times longer wavelengths. And what you know, we didn't cover this exactly, but like, what kind of baseline are you hoping? Do you think is feasible for this telescope? Well, I mentioned in passing thirty six meters, um, and I pick that number. It's not a very round number, but it's one that we, um, for a concept that we studied, the concept was called SPIRIT, Space Infrared Interferometric Telescope. Um, we studied that back in 2004. Um, we would, you could make a structurally connected interferometer with existing technology today that's a little bit bigger than that. Um, I think by the time you got to about 100 meters or longer, then you probably want to shift over to telescopes because the structure itself is going to have a lot of motion um, and that all has to be compensated in the optical system. Um, at, at baselines shorter than about 100 microns, I think you could probably still use a structure that would either be uh, rigid and fixed, maybe deployed once uh, or maybe even assembled in space if, if uh, the desire were there. Um, or uh, what is sometimes used and has been used successfully in past missions like New Star and a uh, mission called SRTM, which was the Shuttle Radar Tomography, either Tomography or Topography, topography, topography Mission, I think, um, SRTM. So that used an articulated boom where the, the boom uh, actually started out, rolled up, and then expanded. And you can use that same technology to extend and retract multiple times 
potentially using, you know, putting the telescope fixed on the boom and having the boom go in and out to change the baseline length. So there are different things that you can use, but at any given time, you want to take advantage of the best available technology. And that boom technology has matured and it's been used successfully. And so, you know, just to like remind people of this, right? Like right now, Webb's primary mirror is six and a half meters. And so to have a 36 meter baseline gives you an angular resolution of the equivalent of a, of a 36 meter telescope. A hundred meters isn't, you know, an infeasible idea. And so once mm-hmm. again, you could have a 100 meter space telescope looking in a less understood regime of, of the universe, which yeah. is a quite exciting idea. And the lessons learned from this will help lead the development of future space-based interferometers. Yep. Have I made, have um, I made so the case a, for why this is small. a great idea? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, hang on for that, that answer. But um, there's a small quibble in what you said, which is that there's a numerical factor that, um, that precedes the calculation of angular resolution from the size and the, the wavelength. Um, and that factor is a little bit different and smaller for an interferometer than it is for a single aperture telescope. So it's not literally true that you would have to take James Webb and make it six and a, or make it ten times bigger to get the same resolution at ten times longer wavelength. It could be maybe eight times bigger right. or something like that. So just a little point. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay, sorry. And now please may ask your question again, because I think I misheard. Well, I, that was it. I was just, you know, like, I feel like, like that's the heart of the argument that you're making and have been making. Like, like in preparation for this in- interview, I sort of went back through literature and searched for your name on archive and, and found versions of this proposal all the way back through into the late nineties. And so, yeah. um, you know, you have been making the case for space-based a space-based missions for far infrared for the, for this time period. And you sort of got pulled into the origins telescope concept, mm-hmm. which has now been sort of sort of squeezed back into the habitable worlds observatory concept. Um, sort of where are we, do you think in this, you know, what is, you know, we know how sort of the next decadal, how the decadal surveys run, how NASA mm-hmm. chooses missions, you know, where do you think this, you know, if this, what is the path that this takes to flying, I guess is what I'm asking. Yeah, yeah, um, great question. So um, the landscape in a variety of ways is always changing. Technology is maturing. Um there, there's the last decadal survey for astrophysics gave us a whole new class of missions called probes, which are about a billion dollars, and you can accept a uh, an international contribution to add to that. Um, and um, so we have to look at all of these ingredients. We very nearly proposed um, the Spirit mission, renamed Spice, as a probe. Uh, These proposals for probes are due in uh, November of this year. Um, For complicated reasons, which I won't go into, we decided not to propose right now. So our next best opportunity is the next decadal survey, we think. 
Um, we're talking about, well, what could you do in the interim period? But right now, for actually flying the mission, I think we're going to need that kind of support or maybe the next probe opportunity, and then we would try it. Because these things really, the structurally connected interferometer really would cost about a billion dollars. Um, so um, there's also what the 2020 decadal survey gave us. Um, so I want to clarify a little point there. It didn't exactly merge Origins Space Telescope, a far infrared single aperture telescope with habitable worlds. What it did was to prioritize habitable worlds as the next great observatory and called for at the same time, ideally operating uh, concurrently, uh, for an, an X-ray flagship mission and a far infrared flagship mission. But it also commented on the cost of the X-ray and origins missions and, um, and suggested that they should not be as expensive as the decadal survey thought they would be, which actually was a little bit more than my study team thought they would be, thought origins would be. Um, but they are certainly flagship class missions. And the decadal survey said, well, make it a half that much. Well, half that much actually would be a very generous amount of funding for an interferometer of the type I'm talking about. So we'll have to see whether the first or, or the rather the next far infrared grade observatory um, would go in the direction of an interferometer or a single aperture telescope. But certainly, if it's going to cost half of the cost of what we projected origins to be, it would have to be smaller than we said origins would be. And what we designed to was 5.9 meters in diameter with the same light collecting area as James Webb, because it's round instead of having hexagonal edges. Um, and um, you know, if you were to make that smaller, it would be approximately Herschel size, three and a half meters, and you would have that same blurriness problem if you looked at the extragalactic sky or tried to see the structure in a protoplanetary disk, you'd be sunk. So it's going to be a matter of the community's priorities 10 years from now or eight years from now, whatever, um, to determine whether it's more important to have the high angular resolution or do a little bit more science along the Herschel line with something more sensitive than Herschel by making it colder, having better detectors, maybe larger format detectors, um, maybe doing some more sky survey work instead of focusing on pointed observations. Um, so what becomes of the origins concept could follow one of these two paths. Now, there is a potential revolution in spaceflight coming. Um, you know, SpaceX is hopefully about to launch Starship successfully. And, you know, mm -hmm. NASA's already contracted with SpaceX to provide the human landing service for his system for, for Artemis 3, for Artemis 4. And so there is the potential for a nine meter fairing, 100 plus tons to orbit, relatively inexpensive, reusable rocket system. Does, does a part of your brain think about what you would do with that kind of launch capability? Would that change your, um, your math? 
<laughs> well, let me give credit where it's due. Um, I have to say that part of my brain doesn't really think a lot along those lines, but it is an exciting prospect. Um, but to give credit where it's due, I recently heard a uh, very nice presentation by my JPL colleague, Charles Lawrence, uh, which exactly looked at that topic with these new launch capabilities, what might that enable and how would we take advantage of that to have greater capability or reduce risk or both. Um, so it's a, you know, a very interesting question and prospect to think about, let's say, a nine meter class telescope operating in the far infrared, being cryocooled, very sensitive. Um, and here again, you get down to the question, which path do you want to follow? And, and where does the science take you? Um, and if you ask one scientist, they have their particular areas of special interest. If you ask a different one, they have another. So here I'm going to give you my opinion. Um, my opinion is that what we most desperately need in the far infrared is that high angular resolution to separate the individual galaxies and measure their spectra, to resolve the protoplanetary disks and see how the planets are forming with direct observations, not through modeling and inference. Um, and even a nine meter class single aperture telescope, um, just a couple of times the size of Herschel is not going to get you hmm. there. So an interferometer would. Right. And so back to the interferometer. And so I guess you could launch a better interferometer or a, your existing plan for hopefully cheaper and with, you know, yeah. built out of stainless steel instead of super lightweight. Mm -hmm. Components. Maybe aluminum. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, question I like to ask people is, what are they? What are you obsessed about right now? <laughs> oh my! First word that comes to mind there is um, OCD because my wife is a psychologist. Um, so I'm I'm not that kind of obsessed, but um, but I am passionate. Let's say about someday flying a far infrared interferometer. I do think that it's just going to make such a tremendous difference to the science quality that we get and, you know, answer questions that we know are out there and open up new ones that we can't even think about yet. But is so there some I aspect of the problem that direction. you're sort of chewing on right now that is really uh, sort of... In the near term? Yeah, like right now, like, you know, yeah. the thing well, that you're sort right of thinking now, about I'm, today I'm is... I'm kind of in a recovery mode, to tell you the truth, because we were going like gangbusters toward this concept of putting in the um, the SPICE pro probe proposal. And uh, now that that, uh, that has kind of crumbled in the past month or so, um, our team is regrouping and starting to think about the longer term, the next decadal survey and the interim steps we might take along the way to make that um, an exciting prospect for the entire astronomical community. Um, so I, I don't have a very good near-term answer for you because right. I'm at this sort of uh, right. crunch period of rethinking. Right, starting to think what the next iteration is. I mean, it is really interesting yeah. to me. We in the public generally see the final result of these telescopes. We see James Webb fly and we see the first light and the observations. But the very existence of the telescope is through this enormous long construction process. And before even that, 
there is just this process of thinking through all of the problems, trying to analyze the risks, trying to convince your colleagues, having them, you know, give you pointed feedback. You, you know, like there is this thinking process that goes on for a long time. And the hope is that it only makes things better. And, you know, it's possible that it also sort of uh, delays really great ideas uh, yeah, un- unnecessarily. We commonly use the expression "better is the enemy of good." Yeah, yeah. Um, but there are many constraints. Um, you have to develop the technologies you need, and for our interferometer, those technologies exist now, so that's not a problem. Uh, you have to have a uh, an opportunity to propose, and we had that with the probe, and um, it didn't quite work, um, and. Uh, you know, a lot of things have to come together and you've got to convince your colleagues that, that it's a compelling concept, of course. And for all of these large missions, as you're saying, it, it really very often takes decades of planning and refining and technology maturation and then looking for the right opportunity. And it's, um, so and it's not about like... And perseverance for on the part of many, many people. Yeah, and I, I can't imagine anybody thinks this is a bad idea. The question is just compared to what? When you look at all yeah, of the well, other possible it, science that yeah. needs to be done and everybody's priorities and all of the big questions that exist in science, and you stack them yeah. all up, mm-hmm. you know, that's always the challenge. Well, David, yeah, it's an absolute pleasure to, to talk to you and sort of talk about this David idea of, of a far infrared uh, interferometer, something that I'm quite excited about, but, uh, and it's nice to know I'm not the only one. Um, and I look so forward to your flight. That. Stick around. You'll see it happen someday. That sounds great. I'm ready. I'm ready. All right. Thank you so much. You too. Take care. Now I'm going to talk more about sort of my conclusions based on this interview that I just did. But first I'd like to thank our patrons. Mark Anstis, Joel Yancey, Antonio Lofilara, Justin Cable, Just Paul Davis, Vlad Shiplin, Jay Dennis, David Giltonad, Modso, George, Jeremy Mattern, Jordan Young, Tim Whalen, Dave Verbioff, Andrew Gross, and Josh Schultz, who support us at the Master of the Universe level, and all of our supporters on Patreon. I hope it came through that this is an idea that I've been thinking about a lot. You know, when people ask me, like, what is the mission that you are the saddest that never flew? It is the terrestrial planet finder. And I was reporting on that, like at the beginning of my career, about how exciting it would be. Like, this was going to be the telescope that was going to help us resolve other Earths around other sunlight stars. And that's because by flying these telescopes in formation, you get this virtual telescope that gives you that angular resolution. And now you can pick off between the star and the planets. Plus, having these multiple telescopes gives you this nullifying ability similar to the chronograph, you can block the light from the star and you can reveal the planets. But building an interferometer in visible wavelengths is a very complicated task. And so to sort of start at the low end of the I guess, to start at the low hanging fruit at the simplest forms of wavelengths of electromagnetic radiation to build interferometer just makes a ton of sense to me. And then match that up with this missing chunk, the far infrared, I think is a great idea. And when you have these modern cryocoolers that can bring that temperature down, you're not having to send up, you know, a tank of liquid helium that you then have to keep. And when that helium runs out, then the telescope can no longer perform those operations. And so, and to bring that price down, hopefully at a billion dollars, 
just feels like it checks off a lot of boxes for me as a person who's been watching this field for a long time. And I don't care how we do it. I want to see an interferometer fly in space within my lifetime. So hopefully this is the one that's going to do it. All right. Thanks for watching and we'll see you next time.